My name is Brad, and I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge Community Church. And um, I don't know what your experience was, but when I was growing up, one of the very confusing parts of my experience as a teenager, my family had started going to church for a little while by this time, and I had made different Christian friends in different traditions. And they attended different churches. And I began to discover that depending on the church that you went to, there was a very specific list of things that you should be doing and also things that you should not be doing. And this surprisingly varied from church to church. So for my Lutheran friends, when I talked to them, I discovered that in their tradition, playing cards was sinful and that you shouldn't do that. For my Seventh-day Adventist friends, Eating pork was sinful and should not be engaged in. For my Presbyterian friends, going to movies was sinful, and yet somehow renting the same video when it came out on a, a DVD or VHS in the local video store was considered supporting a local business. So there were some holes in the rules. But for my Pentecostal friends, dancing was sinful, and we grew up going to a Baptist church, and so for Baptist, all of the above, and then the addition of drinking was sinful. So you could probably develop your own list of things that you experienced at some point in your life or your journey around the conversation of ethics. And the list of ethical offsides really varies from Christian tradition to Christian tradition. It varies from era to era, sometimes generation to generation, denomination to denomination. And so it, it should give us pause for a moment to stop and ask the question, where in the world do Christian ethics come from then if there's such a large variation within some of these behavioral dynamics? Where are Christian people getting their ethics from? Is there or could we develop some set of standard or understood or agreed upon uh, list of behaviors that defines what it means to live Christianly. These are the things that Christian people should do, and these are the things that Christian people shouldn't do. And then how does that list go about getting communicated, getting modeled, getting reinforced, and getting opened up for discussion? Well, we're continuing our teaching series this morning uh, in the book of Ephesians that we've been in for this fall season. And today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17, and we're going to sneak into a little bit of Rose's text next week in chapter 5, just stealing verses 1 and 2 from her, if that's all right. Uh, and we're going to explore the notion uh, in this section is under the uh, title of Living in the Light. What does it mean to live in the light? And the Apostle Paul, who was one of the early leaders in the Christian movement, is writing to a group of early Jesus followers, Christians, in the ancient city of Ephesus in the first century. And this group, you'll remember, is made up of people who have learned the way of Jesus coming out of very, very diverse backgrounds. Some were Jewish, and some were non-Jewish or Gentile. And each of those groups had a very specific set of lists for ethics and what it meant to actually follow Jesus together. Very, very different rules as to what's acceptable and unacceptable behavior in Christian community. And Paul's deep concern for them is to come to a place of unity and maturity in their faith. And so he uses several 
images here, two key ones in this passage, to help them understand and have and frame a discussion together. So the first word picture that he uses is that of light and darkness. Light being those things that would characterize those who are living in the light. And then he uses the second metaphor, putting off or putting on. And here he's using the imagery of clothing, putting off things that are ill-fitting or don't work or are worn out or not helping and putting on things that are life-giving and useful. So turn with me in your Bibles uh, or in your app to Ephesians chapter 4. There's a Bible inside of the Jericho Ridge app uh, if you need that. And I'm going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And we'll uh, follow along. Some but not all of the key passages uh, in this will come up on the screen for you to follow along on. So Paul begins right after his discussion last week on spiritual gifts and coming to unity and maturity in faith and Christian community. In verse 17, he says, With the Lord's authority, I say this, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life that God gives them because they have closed their minds and they have hardened their hearts against Him being God. So, intriguingly, in his discussion on Christian ethics, Paul does not begin in the place that you might think that he should begin, and that is with some kind of a list. He actually begins with describing more of a posture, more of a way of being in the world, and he starts with a negative posture. The, the Gentiles, he says, those who are not following the way of Jesus, they're living in a place of darkness and confusion. And this, he says, comes from two places. One place is a mind that is filled with darkness, and the second is a heart that is filled with hardness toward God. And so for Paul, the real problem with any set of behaviors that he's going to get to in a minute isn't that it's Christian or not Christian. Paul says here the real problem is actually going on underneath that in the mind and in the heart. Evil behavior comes from darkened mind. Confused behavior comes from darkened minds, and darkened minds come from hardened hearts, and hardened hearts come from choosing to close ourselves off toward the life-giving work of the Spirit of God. And if you think about and go back and read through the Bible, Old and New Testaments, with this in mind. There's a long tradition of people who choose to turn away from God, who choose to harden their heart in some way to the invitation of fullness of life that God has to offer every human being. And, and they make decisions that whether the text uses that language like it does of Pharaoh, that Pharaoh hardened his heart or not, we can see that happening in their lives. Think about Adam and Eve and their choice to say, you know what, I think I want to be like God. I need more knowledge than I have been given. Or Cain, who's consumed with jealousy and rage, and this leads him to the place where he commits murder against his brother. 
Or we read in continuing just in Genesis that uh, by the time of Noah, entire generations have become consumed with this and their minds are darkened and their hearts are hardened. We have Pharaoh when Moses um, is speaking on behalf of God, is inviting and calling for liberation of the oppressed. Pharaoh is consumed with economic game and nationalistic interest and says no and hardens his heart. And the list goes on and on and on and on through the Scriptures and into Paul's day and down through into our own day and relationships and experiences as well. And Paul looks around. Remember, he pastored in the city of Ephesus for several years. So he, he looks around with a pastoral heart at the people in the city of Ephesus. And he says this about them in 4 verse 19. They have no sense of shame. They are lustful for pleasure, and they eagerly practice every kind of impurity. And so Paul is is seeing that the, the quote-unquote moral vision of the people in the city of Ephesus is really shaped by the notion that this life is all there is on offer. So therefore, eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. This sense of kind of hedonistic approach. And this allows them to do all kinds of things within a framework that makes sense to them. They think, well... Why, why should I have any shame about that? I wanted a pleasurable experience, sexually or otherwise, and I got it. So who's her, who am I hurting? What's the problem with that? And Paul says, you're, you're disrespecting a person's hood if you treat someone as a sexual object and you feel no sense of shame because your heart is actually hardened toward them, towards God, and toward reality. And this is a problem. But it's, it's a problem that becomes easy when you define behaviors quite tightly within Christian communities to say, well, that's those people's problem. I mean, those people. Have you seen what kind of behaviors they do? It's just horrible. And the problem and challenge is that Christian people then sometimes go out into the world in a well-meaning way, and, and when they find a behavior that doesn't have any alignment, they say to someone, you need to stop doing that. Just... Stop having sex with those people. Just, just stop being greedy. Just stop lying. But what we fail to realize is that rushing around, trying to stop or legislate evil behavior, is a little bit like trying to battle Medusa. You're going to cut off the head and another evil something is going to rise up and take its place. There's just too much unhealth underneath the surface of those behaviors. And just paying attention to the behavioral manifestations of them in lives of people around us or a society is insufficient. And so look what Paul does here in his call out to those who are living, arguably in a more pagan culture and environment, more challenging cultural situation than we find ourselves in today. Paul does not, again, start with a list of behaviors that Christians should do and a list of behaviors that they shouldn't do. He starts with really the operating system underneath those things. He says, let's talk about where those things come from. The mind and the heart, which we've talked about, the heart is that place, the center of our being, our whole person 
hood, not just the organ that pumps our blood. And here's the problem that sometimes as Christian people we miss, and that is that focusing strictly on behavioral modification is dealing with things at a surface level. What you really need to do if you want to begin to live a life of love that pleases God, like we sang about in that last song, is think about going beyond the surface level and renewing your mind in the language of Romans chapter 12, which then also means cultivating a soft heart. So let me illustrate this for you with a story from uh, our own family journey. When, when my dad came to Saving Faith when I was very young. He had been wrestling for years and years to that point in his life with uh, addiction to alcohol and alcohol abuse. And, and in our house, uh, in my young mind, I have a clear memory of just an entire wall of our house was just covered with spirits and booze. We had one of the best bars in town. We lived in a small town. It was better than some of the restaurants. And, and this was my memory of, of growing up. And then through a series of circumstances, my father and then my mom came to saving faith in Jesus. And, and in his early part of his journey, alcohol still had a controlling influence over him in an unhealthy way. And I don't know what conversations his friends were having with him in Christian community or behind closed doors. That Sumner guy really needs to get his act together. I mean, have you been over to his house and seen the booze and the alcohol over there? But some friends started to ask different and better questions. And they started to say to him, hey, why, why do you feel the need to drink in that way? What, what's actually going on in your history, in your life right now? What are you, what are you hiding from? What are you numbing down in the way that you are using alcohol. They helped him to think more deeply about that and get to a place where he started to realize the answer to some of those questions needed to result in some behavioral changes and some thinking changes for him. And so I have another very clear memory of my father standing on the driveway of one of the mentors in his Christian life and just pouring out symbolically one of the bottles of alcohol, just as his way of saying, this does not have control over my life anymore. Jesus does. And I'm choosing a different path, and I want to invite people around me into that. And it was a powerful moment for our family where we began to see that he was shifting his relationship with alcohol and not only just changing his behaviors, but actually changing his mind and allowing God to change his heart about that. And friends, this is why things that just attack the surface, and it doesn't matter what the area is. Say it's uh, gluttony in the area of diets and the whole diet industry, or whether it's, this is why we're so fond of and supportive of counseling here at Jericho Ridge, is because we encourage you to get beneath the surface and not just deal with those root behaviors. We want you to deal with the why behind the what in your life. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. This doesn't mean that there's no place for legislation of behaviors that are actually unhelpful to whole groups of people. 
conversations about behavior and just say, well, we can never talk about someone's behavior, then we need to really deal with other things. That's not off the table. But what needs to be in our thinking is that we have to get at the root and not just deal with the fruit of these kinds of issues. And this is what Paul is driving at here. He's saying the old nature, that old operating system in your life, it's going to produce old, unhelpful, unhealthy behaviors. And a new nature, a new operating system inserted into your life is going to produce a new kind of behaviors. And that is where Paul goes next. So let's follow him in his logic in chapter 4, verse 20. He says this, that that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and you have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature, your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. And so Paul turns now from his first image of light and darkness to his second image of putting off, putting on. So he's talking about putting off old types of thinking, old ways of being. And he's using a metaphor of clothing and putting on new things, new ways of thinking, new ways of being. Now, think about, though, when you go out and you buy a new set of shoes. I'm a runner, and and it's, it's a constant conversation with runners and their running shoes about, like, have you broken in your new shoes yet? And what we mean by that is when you buy a new pair of running shoes, it is not wise to run a marathon that day in them. You need to give them a little bit of time to get broken in, just like a new pair of hiking boots. And so sometimes the same thing is true with your Christian life. If you've come to saving faith, all of the things in your life are not going to change instantly. There's some behaviors that may have some lag time that you need to think about. What are we putting off and what are we putting on? There's a period of transition in some of our lives. And so Paul then begins to go into a list of things that we should be thinking about putting off and things that we should thinking be thinking about putting on in our Christian lives and experience. But what I find fascinating about this next part of the text is he doesn't just list them and say, all right, these are the things. He actually tries to give a sense of the why behind the what. Why is this thing unhelpful for us? So starting in verse 25, Paul says, stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth for or because we are all part of the same body. Verse 26, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously or so that you can give generously to those in need. Verse 29, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. So lying, let's just look at that for a moment. In verse 25, Paul says, lying is unhelpful because you live in a community. And when you live together with other people, the truth is necessary for beneficial life together in community. If you're always telling lies, people can't get to know the real you. They can't press in to those places. And so put it away. Put it off. Get rid of it. 
because truth is going to bind you together in community. Then anger, sinful anger. Paul talks about this, and he says, you need to put away sinful anger or anger that leads to sin because it causes division and it leaves the door open a crack for evil thinking and evil actions to enter into your life. Now, again, don't hear what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that anger is sinful. Anger is a human emotion. Emotions, the experience of them in our bodies, is not sin. But what Paul is saying is pay attention to this one because this one in particular can actually lead you to places, things, thinking, behaviors that are sinful because anger has that kind of influence in our lives. It leaves the door open to other types of things. And so if you allow it, for example, to become a fuel for your life and your journey, which is very easy to do if you spend any time on social media, then it's going to seep into your mind and seep into your heart as a long-term corruption of the operating system. And so Paul says, put, it, put aside sinful anger. It's going to create divisiveness. Stealing. Why should I put aside stealing? Well, Paul says, it's going to rob you of the opportunity to provide generous, reliable help to be in time to people in times of need. Paul doesn't actually just say, don't steal, and then goes on. He says, stealing is wrong because it actually creates the conditions in your world where work is not going to meaningfully gain you the regular opportunity to be generous to those that you need to be in your own circle of influence and to whom God brings you in contact with. But if you work, you're going to be able to provide for people in a way that's wise and sustainable as opposed to stealing. So here he's going deeper again, right, than just a list of do this, don't do this. Next, he tackles how we speak, foul language. And again, you might think him to say things like, well, swearing is wrong, just don't do it. But he's actually targeting something deeper and more broad and more specific. He uses the word unwholesome language or unwholesome talk. And he says, because if unwholesome talk continues to come out of your mouth, you're going to miss the opportunities for God's grace to flow through your speech into the lives of others. And it would just be such a shame for you to pass up that chance. Language that is characterized by abusiveness or by being foul in some way is not recommended because out of the same mouth, James says later on in the New Testament, you're going to give praise to God and you want to be able to speak useful and helpful things to other people. And so if you're always into deep and unwholesome communication, whether that's gossip or whether that's criticism, you're going to miss out on the opportunity to speak things that are good and helpful and encouraging. So he continues in Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not, by doing all of those things, don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. In the ancient world, Paul's picking up on uh, something that would be very familiar to the people in Ephesus, and that is a seal or a stamp was affixed to any official 
document or package uh, that was going out into any space in the world so that everybody who saw that knew who it was connected with and what the purpose of that particular communication was for. It was a sense of belonging. Ooh, that communication is coming from the emperor to our city. It must be important. We should pay attention. Oh, that document, that seal is the seal of the courts. That must be going to the courts. It must belong to the lawyers and the judges for some official purpose in that way. And so Paul is saying, and he translates this into our lives If you are a part of God's family and have said yes to Jesus, Paul says you have been sealed. You are God's own. You have been marked in some way so that everyone who sees you knows to whom you belong or what purpose your life should have. Theologian N.T. Wright says it this way, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the community and in the heart of the individual Christian declares that we belong to God. You are sealed. This is your hope. This is your identity. This is your eternal destiny. You belong to God. God has a purpose for you and your life, and this should give shape and give hope to your experience of your life here and now, even sometimes in the midst of suffering. You belong to God. And so because of that, Paul says, put away. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and slander as well as all types of evil behavior in verse 31. Instead, he says, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God through Christ has forgiven you. Chapter 5, verse 1, remembering that there's no chapter demarcations in the original. He says, he keeps going, imitate God, therefore, in everything that you are and everything that you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ who loved us and offered himself up as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. See, the other thing that strikes me about this text is that Paul does not just stop with a list of things to put off, to get rid of in some way. He also invites us into that space to consider the things in our lives that we need to put on and embrace. And so in verse 32 and in chapter 5, verse 2, he says we want to put on kindness. We want to put on tenderheartedness. We want to put on forgiveness and sacrificial love for one another. And the reason is because we want to be imitators of our Father in heaven. Imitators. Think about how babies and young children begin to learn to do things in their life and in their experience. They develop skills for language and for life by imitation. They learn by choosing to pattern themselves and their actions after someone. And then they start to mimic that person until they feel like they're mastering or getting closer to mastering the way that that person does that particular skill, walking or speaking or whatever it is. And Paul here is saying the same invitation is open for you and for me. To allow our minds and to allow our hearts 
to be shaped so that we can be imitators of God in everything that we do. We can follow the example or pattern our lives after the example of Christ. And this is why things like Scripture intake or loving accountability in a corrective way or regular connectivity with worshiping communities matters. Not just because somehow sociologically you might be less likely to do bad things, but actually these types of activities help to shape our behavior, and our behavior then can actually begin to shape our character, our thinking, and our heart. And our character then becomes shaped more and more closely to reflect our loving and gracious Lord Jesus. And so as we prepare to move into a time of responding to God in communion and in worship and song, I want to ask just a couple of questions for you and leave them with you to think about. And the first one is just this question of, Where do we start when we're having conversations? Do I start with the heart, the thinking, or the behavior when I'm trying to make an adjustment in my life or in the lives of another person? See, if you forever are scratching at the surface, that behavioral component of things, you still haven't dealt with the core problem at all. It's like scraping a little bit of mold off of the bread and then just downing the whole thing anyways, not realizing, oh, I'm probably moldy on the inside. I probably don't need this in my body as it is. As a parent or grandparent, think about this. Do you just wave your finger in the air at the behavior, and then if the behavior goes away, you think, fantastic, I am a, I am a really good parent. <laughs> I am a great caregiver for this young child or a young adult. Or do we begin to ask ourselves better questions like, where is this coming from in your life? Where is this leading you and directing you in some way? How is the wrong thinking that I can see maybe impacting other people around you that you love? If this is a new process for you and you're accustomed to thinking about Christianity as behavioral modification, then I'd encourage you to come and talk to our staff, or go and talk to the people who will make available for prayer response uh, at the back when we move into our time of response. And part of the reason we'd invite conversation for you is that we want to challenge and push you to go deeper. And that can look like a number of different things. We have a list of professional counselors uh, that we would recommend and invite you to seek out. And if you need assistance in that, then we would love to partner with you in that journey. Or maybe we can help you find a trusted spiritual friend or a spiritual director who can help you scratch beneath the surface and get at some of those root issues. The second thing to think about is one area where our transformation is probably most evident, and that is how we speak to those around us and how we treat those around us. So it's helpful to think about the quality of our speech and the quality of our interactions. Is our speech and behavior here in this church? Is your speech and behavior in your home characterized by kindness and by mutual forgiveness? The worship team is going to come, and we're going to move toward a time of responding in communion. But 
kindness and mutual forgiveness are some of the hallmarks of transformation in our own lives and in community. It's a signal that in some small way, we have begun to take steps towards putting off the old and putting on the new. A new way of thinking and acting, that we are beginning to embrace a life that is more and more like a new life in Christ. And then Paul finishes this with just this powerful and concrete and specific example of what transformed living looks like. And he says, Christ's example is the penultimate example because Christ put his love for us into action. As we move into a time of communion, this is what we celebrate and this is what and why we remember. I want to invite you to spend this time as we ready for communion, thinking about what it would look like to explore your life and asking God's Spirit to search you. You want to ask questions like, God, is there any places of hardness in my heart that I have allowed to develop over time? Please point them out to me. I want to repent. I want to change that. I invite you by your Spirit to give me a soft heart. And then think about your mind. Are there any places in your mind where you think, I'm just not thinking rightly or clearly about these things. There's, there's darkness in my mind in some way. Ask God to bring conviction to change or any area of your life and your heart, your mind, your behavior that the Spirit puts the Spirit's fingers on that need loving attention. And so for our communion celebration here uh, at Jericho and for those who are joining us online, we'd invite you to get the elements ready. Uh, for those who are in the room, there's individually packaged elements on your seats and a gluten-free options available at the back by the kids' check-in station uh, if you need that. Our prayer response team is also going to move into place this time. And today, that's uh, Pastor Jason and Allie Nicole and Meg Sumner. And they're going to make themselves available at the back. And they have a name tag on. You can go to them at any time during the remainder of the morning. And they would be privileged to stand with you and pray with you. I'd invite you to uh, get out the wafer, which is just on the top of your package there. And when we move into spaces of communion, when we've asked God to search our hearts, to search our minds, to point out any areas that God might want to change in us, we come to that place where we say again, God, I'm so thankful that you have made a way for me to experience freedom from those things that bind through the sacrifice of Jesus, Jesus who gave his body for us on the cross of Calvary, broken that you might be whole. Let's receive with thanks that which Christ has offered to us. And in the same way, when Jesus was gathered with his first disciples in the upper room, he gathered them and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
It represents a new way of relating to God. Not based on shallow things like a set of behaviors, but based on something so much richer and deeper. A life of possible communion with Jesus based on the forgiveness that he offers. And so as you drink this, receive afresh the forgiveness of God. Jesus, I'm so grateful that you call and invite us to be imitators of you, and you have such grace and patience with us as we stumble along the way. And so continue shaping us, Father. Continue the work of your Spirit that you have begun. You have sealed us. You have filled us. You are inviting us into deeper places with you. And so I choose and we choose in this place today to say yes to that invitation. Amen. Friends, let's worship together. And at any time that you'd like to stand and respond in that way, if you'd like to kneel, if you'd like to remain seated, you're most welcome to do that. Our prayer team is available for you at the back. Let's worship.